I knew it. Like that was my God. He was doing these things for me. And I was forever grateful that he had removed the desire to use for me. Like it, it was gone. It was absolutely gone. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast hosts. Today, we are bringing you a story of addiction that is from our Montgomery gathering. And when our team leader in Montgomery reached out to me to coach this storyteller, I realized that we went to college together. And Hillary had no idea. And so Jennifer, our storyteller, and I got to reconnect for the first time really since college. So we were at Alabama together. You'll hear a little bit of that in her story and the life she has lived and where God has brought her today. Wow. You know, last week's story was a story of transformation, and this week's story is the exact same thing, story of redemption, how, you know, you're never too far gone for God to not only save you, but use you in just such incredible ways. When I first listened to Jennifer's story, I was just blown away, and I thought, I have got to do a story within the story with her. I even texted Amy Grody, our Patreon manager, and said, hey, do you care if I actually do this interview? Selfishly, I wanted to talk more with Jennifer. And so today, you're going to hear more from Jennifer in our story within the story. I'm going to talk with her more just about how the Lord has shown up in her life uh, through everything that she's walked through. I'm going to talk with her more about, of course, her story and just how God has shown up more in her life. I'm going to also talk with her about you know, her counseling job at Bradford how amazing that is that God led her to there, and then just her health coaching as well. And so anyway, if you're not a Patreon member, please go join. It's easy to join. Just go to our website, and you can click on the button to join Patreon. And before Jennifer's story, we are so excited to let you know that we have a new way to give to our Storytellers Live ministry. We are implementing monthly ministry partners. And so we would just ask for you to consider becoming a monthly ministry partner so that you can support the mission of storytellers so that more women literally around the world hear stories of hope found in Jesus. We are just so grateful for all of you that support Storytellers Live, either through Patreon, being a Patreon insider. We've talked about how much that supports our ministry and keeps the podcast on the air, but also those of you that support and are already monthly donors. We really appreciate you. Here's Jennifer's story. I want to start my daughter I was telling her about this last week or a couple of weeks back and I told her I had a podcast to do and she kind of laughed and um, she was like how do these people contact you they just call you out of the blue and say hey we hear you burned your life into the ground and Jesus saved you <laughs> would you be willing to share that story and we kind of laughed but basically that's kind of how it goes this is the second one I've done and I will never not be willing because he saved me, and I'm grateful for that. I was born and raised here in Montgomery, Alabama. I was the youngest of two daughters. Great home life. Nothing in my upbringing would have led me down the path that I went down. Other than some alcoholism on my dad's side, but that was not apparent. Like, they lived in South Florida, had no interaction with them, so I, I didn't know. But I was in church a lot. I went to a private Christian school, and I just kind of always, I believed in God because my parents believed. I mean, I had no reason to not trust them. Everybody at school and church, I mean, this many people couldn't be wrong about something. And so I just, I, I believed, but when I made the decision around the age of 13 to be baptized, I think it was a decision in my head and not my heart. And so I would you know, just check that box off. I was basically getting some fire insurance. I wanted to be able to take communion 
and I wanted to be able to avoid hell. And so after I had done those two things, I thought I was ready to go pursue worldly things. And so that's what I would do. I grew up privileged, but these kids I went to school with were even more so privileged. And so from an early age, I remember like just playing the comparison game. I always felt, you know, either greater than or less than, but at school I always felt less than. Um, at church I felt greater than. And so I've heard it said before, somebody has said you can identify as an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And so that was pretty much myself. My earliest friend groups, I was friends with like the more studious, like the shyer girls, because I'm kind of introverted, not not real boisterous, but um, I wasn't happy in that group. That's a, another trend in my story, a lot of discontentment. But I wasn't happy there, and so I would pursue to be in the popular crowd, and I would, I would accomplish that, and would be part of that crowd from there on out, but would never really feel like I belonged, kind of felt like I had to do something to, to get into it or something, kind of tricked them to be in it. My first memory of alcohol was actually, there was no alcohol involved. Um, I was probably around the age of six years old, and I would go to my grandparents' house, and they didn't drink, my parents didn't drink, but they had these dessert glasses that resembled wine glasses, and I would pretend to drink my juice out of these dessert glasses. And so I don't know if that's normal. I don't think it is. Um, there were signs that I was going to go down the path of alcoholism later that I can see now but could not see then. But my first memory of alcohol was around the age of 15. It was at a friend's house whose parents did not drink either, but they had this bottle of, it was Cordon Negro was the brand. I remember it was on top of the refrigerator. It was dusty. It was a champagne. It was room temperature. It was horrible. And I'm sure it was my idea to drink it. And so we did. And I just remember when I drank it feeling like this is the solution. Like this is what is going to solve the shyness. Like I have found the solution. And so the next day we did not feel well. She swore she would never do it again. And I couldn't wait until the next time. And that was just kind of high school. From that point forward, I drank alcoholically. Uh, never less than a 12-pack. I was always the sober driver because I was the one that could drive us and drink a 12-pack and drive us. I was proud that I drank like the boys. And, I mean, high school was fun. I hear people say they didn't like high school. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. A little too much. So, speaking of boys, you know, when you're popular, you got to have a boyfriend. So, that was going to be the next thing I would seek after to check off that list. And I would. And... Because I wasn't seeking God, I was seeking worldly things, and I was looking to these 16, 17, 18-year-old boys to, to make me feel my worth, my value, my identity was in them, and we know how that's going to end. It, it did not end well, and so they would break my heart, and I would, you know, be upset for a little while and move on to another one, but, you know, I was expecting them to, they were kind of my idol, my God, in my life. I made good grades in high school, but but just partied a whole lot, so... Um, I would graduate at the top of my class. Things just came easily for me. I didn't have to study. I, I just kind of accomplished whatever I set my mind to and some of what I didn't. Um, I did not realize then the favor of the Lord on my life. I thought they were all things that I was achieving, and so thus the ego. I would graduate from high school and go to the University of Alabama, and this was 
kind of a, a big decision because both my parents graduated from Auburn. My sister did also, but I based the decision on boyfriend number two, who at the time, he was in the class above me. He was going to Alabama, so I went there. And um, by the time I would get to school, he was no longer my boyfriend. And now boyfriend number three, who I would end up marrying, is at Auburn. But I would stay. Uh, I rushed. I pledged a sorority. I was an alpha game at Alabama. I mean, I had a good time, but I did not party like I would have had he been there. I was too worried about what he was doing at Auburn. So I would stay there two years, and then I would decide to transfer to Auburn to be with him to make sure I could keep eyes on what he was doing because I didn't want him to do what the other two had done to me. I was going to make sure he didn't. And it wasn't like I was able to make a lot of big life decisions without really consulting with my parents, but they were kind of glad. Like that was where I was supposed to go to begin with. So I just went. I would transfer. When I got there, though, the partying increased. It became nightly pretty much lots of widespread panic following, um, but I kept my grades up. I don't know how, but I did, and I would graduate from Auburn the day after graduation. My mom was like, why didn't you tell us that you graduated cum laude? And I was like, mm, I didn't know, and so that was just the story of my life, like just graduating from with honors and, and partying the whole time and, and just had no clue. So I would get a job in Birmingham. I majored in fashion merchandising. That could be some of how I got that. <laughs> but I would get a job at the Parisian Buying Office, which was an honor to get for somebody in my major. Um, I was an assistant buyer. Like it was a highly sought-after job for someone. Another ring up on the ladder of success. Um, but when I got there, my connection would have stayed in Auburn. Husband and, I mean, not husband yet, boyfriend and his friends, like that was where I got all my stuff. And so I had a, I had a bad drug habit by this time. And um, I had to figure something out. So I did, and that would be to order pills online through a pharmacy based out of Florida. And it started out with one prescription and that was like 100 Lortab and 100 Xanax, and then when it was all said and done, I was getting three different prescriptions, so around 300 of each, um, and developed a really bad habit really quickly. So sometime in there, I would get married. So we got married, he came to Birmingham, and, and we just continued the party. He traveled a lot with work, so I was alone a lot, and, and would just, you know, use in the, that time that I was alone. So um, during that time also, this pharmacy got busted and they just stopped answering phone calls and stopped making deliveries. And you can't go from 300 Lord Tab a month to none and, and be able to function. And I was not, I was unable to go to work. We brought my parents in at this time and told them that I was suffering from depression. It was not a complete lie. You would have been too if you went from 300 Lord Tab to none in that amount of time, but did not mention any of the drug problem to them at all. And so in order to file short-term disability with work, I would have to go see a psychiatrist and get some paperwork signed for the short-term disability. But before I would go, I would decide that I wanted to kill a few birds with one stone and would read the DSM, it was the four then, it's the five now, but it had like all the diagnoses in it of like what to say to a doctor to get what you want. 
And so I knew I wanted to be diagnosed with ADHD, anxiety, and depression for this paperwork. And so I would. I would leave there with all those diagnoses and a prescription for Adderall, Clonopin, and something for depression that I wouldn't take. So from that point forward, the depression, I mean, the, the addiction, drug of choice, changed to Adderall. It was basically just whatever I could get, just more of anything to change the way I felt. Don't really know why I was so discontent other than looking back on it now. It was just the absence of, of Jesus in my life. So didn't didn't see that then. We would then move to Montgomery, and I would end up getting a better job. And we built a house in, in Deer Creek and just two more rings up on the ladder. And um, not too long after moving there, we would find out that we were pregnant I was unable to stop using with her. I had too, too bad of a habit to stop. And she was born perfectly healthy, and that would be a lot of the reason why it was even harder to stop with baby number two. When she was born, like I said, she was perfectly beautiful, healthy. Um, it's scary being a new mom. I'm sure a lot of y'all know. It is really scary, and it's a whole lot scarier when you are a drug addict and can't even manage your own life, and you're having to be responsible for, for this new being. Um, so I, I know that there was some postpartum depression going on. Looking back now, if, if she was awake, I felt like I had to be awake. If she was asleep, I thought I had to be awake, cleaning bottles for the next time she woke up. And so more and more Adderall just kept piling on. Around this time also, my husband decided that he wanted me to be a stay-at-home mom, didn't want me to go back to work. And as someone who always wanted to be like a career woman and wear a suit and carry a briefcase, that was not my, my dreams were, you know, came crashing down when that happened. But at the same time, I wasn't able to function at work, so I was kind of okay with it. Um, also, around this time, I would find out on credit card statements that he was spending thousands of our dollars on escorts on his business trips and would not admit it when I confronted him with it, said that he was getting them for his clients, and I, I knew the truth. It was on paper. And so, you know, I with these things, I didn't know anything else to do other than just numb and, and use more. And so that's that's what I did. Not too long after that, he would decide me being a stay home was not a good idea, and he was correct. Um, but he would go to my parents and tell them that I had a drug problem now. And this is the first time that they have heard anything about any drug problem. They hardly even knew I drank other than me wanting to have alcohol at our wedding and them not allowing it. Like, that was just kind of how I was raised. Like, alcohol was forbidden. And so... They were shocked. That would land me in rehab number one, and that was at Bradford Warrior. When I was there, I was doing nothing but looking at the differences in myself and the people there. You know, I had never shot up. I had never been arrested. I still was married. I still had my child. I still lived in a gated community. I still drove a BMW, and I still wore a Rolex. Like, I, I was not like these people. And so he would come to family visitation, and I would talk him into letting me leave against medical advice. And um, the staff there at Bradford does not really smile on that. They want you to stay and get the most out of your treatment. And 
I just remember being in the clinical director's office telling him I was nothing like these people. I didn't think I was better than these people, but I was nothing like them and I was going to leave. And so I did. Um, I would leave and we would go home and go right back to the same old, same old. Uh, not too long after that would be when I would burn our house down. And so on this day that this happened, I had had too many Adderall and as was every day, but this day I didn't have anything to help me calm down. And so I had plans to go to my grandparents' house, who I knew kept Klonopin in their medicine cabinet. Well, Holland was a baby and a carrier, and I, I went and I smoked a cigarette on the back patio first, because I didn't smoke in the car with her. I would go on the back porch and smoke the cigarette, and when you're doing copious amounts of amphetamines, you, you get real crafty, and you do like lots of little arts and crafts, and Anyway, you probably don't know, but you do. And um, so I had made this ashtray and obviously either didn't put enough sand in it or it was like a, a very flammable product. I don't know. It could have been the paint. But I had also laid like a brand new bed of, uh, flower bed with some fresh pine straw. And so the combination of the fresh pine straw and the cigarette, not all the way out, it did not make for a good combo. I left. And I went to my grandparents' house, and when I got there, they weren't there. So I was unable to go in, and I just had to turn right back around and come back. This was before I would just have broken in their house and, and gotten what I wanted out of the medicine cabinet. Um, so I turned right back around, and I got a call from my mom, and she's panicking, and she's just, you know, in hysterics saying, Jennifer, you are literally burning your life into the ground because of these drugs. Why can't you see it? And I was offended. I, I couldn't see it. I did not see the correlation between the fire and the drugs. Like, it was an accident, Mom. Why can't you see that? You know, I didn't see it. I, I, when you're in the middle of your own mess, you, you can't see it. And I couldn't. And so I would get there, and I would get to the house, and the paramedics would put me in the back of the truck and question me because my mom had given them all the scoop before I got there. And, um, I mean, they let me go. It's not like I was going to be charged with arson because it technically was an accident, but it had everything to do with my drug problem, and I was unable to see that. But that would earn me trip number two to rehab. And so this time they were going to make sure they sent me somewhere that was going to fix me because that first place did not. And they sent me to, it was in Williamsburg, Virginia. It was called the Farley Center. It was for healthcare professionals, so it was doctors, lawyers, nurses, anybody with board involvement at risk of losing their license, and myself, the newly stay-at-home mom. While I was there, I was not focused on my recovery. I was worried about getting this house rebuilt. I was on the phone with contractors and picking out paint colors and, and just not concerned at all with what was going on there, really. Um, so a, it was a 90-day program, and about... 45 days in, my parents found out that my husband actually had a little problem of his own that he failed to share with them, um, that he had had three DUIs and a voting under the influence, and they were really upset that he had not shared any of that with them when he was telling them about my problem. They were upset with me for not telling them also, and so they refused to pay for the rest of my treatment, um, which was around $30,000, which I was not going to do because I was happy that they weren't. That meant I could come home. And so I would, but he would have to come pick me up um, because I didn't have a license. People in active addiction don't really get things renewed, and they let things expire in a timely manner. So I did not have a license. He had to pick me up. 
about 30 minutes into the ride home, I asked him for something. He handed me something in pill form. And then we went right back to the same old, same old. So then I was home. I don't know the length of time, but not too long. A few months probably. And I would overdose. I think this was my second or third overdose. And I would find out that I was pregnant with my second child while I was in the hospital for this overdose. And so that's not the best way to find out that you're, you're going to be a mom, as, as y'all can imagine. Um, but because I was unable to stop with my first child, I was even more so unable to stop with him because she was perfectly beautiful and healthy. And so I didn't. And he, he was born perfectly beautiful and healthy also. I mean, I, I can look back and see that, that God was protecting both of them, you know, in my womb. Um, but when, when I gave birth to him, they tested me because my parents made, made sure of it. And I, I tested positive. I know I was taking the Adderall and, um, I had managed to get a psychiatrist to prescribe me to the Klonopin somehow. And I was smoking marijuana. And so, um, I spent one night in the hospital and when you have a baby and you test positive, you don't get treated like you do when you, that's not the case. And so it was a really lonely time. I mean, I, my parents came and visit, visited me and brought my daughter, but they didn't stay long. I mean, it was just a real bad time. Um, the nurses there, they don't quite treat you the same. And so whenever we went home, we would go home, and both kids were at home with us one night. But then the following day, DHR would come and drug tested both of us, and we would both fail, and then my kids, both kids would go live with my parents going forward. And so all I knew to do was numb that pain. I mean, as, as a mother and your children are just taken, it's, it's a hard thing to swallow. It really is. And, and I was just so, I don't know. I wasn't in my right mind anyway, but it, it was a lot. And all I knew to do was numb. And so I did. And so basically for the next 10 years, that's what I did. I was in and out of rehabs. I would get a little bit of sobriety. And then I was trying to do it in my own strength, though, every single time. And it was miserable. It was impossible. Um, I just I never thought I'd be able to get sober because of how hard it was every time I tried those 10 years. I didn't know how to ask God to take it from me. Um, I seriously thought that I was a Christian and living, I mean, I knew I wasn't living right, but I, I expected a whole lot of grace. And um, so everything that I said I did not belong at that first treatment center, all those reasons why I didn't belong, that time came true over these 10 years. I would start shooting up. I would get arrested. My children were taken. Um, mental institutions. We foreclosed on that house, bankruptcy, not able to keep a job. Friend, I had lost friends, um, would end up getting divorced. Just every single reason why I didn't belong there had happened, had come true. So around 2015 would be the first time I would catch a felony charge. I had a little period of some sobriety and my dad was trying to help me out. He had a friend who was a widow who needed somebody to clean his house. And so I started doing it. And when I started, I was doing a good job. Like I remember 
feeling good that they could trust me, and they could at that point. But then I relapsed sometime in there, and this day I would steal. Uh, it was a small jewelry box, but it had $30,000 worth of jewelry in it. So when that came up missing, they knew who took it. And um, that would end me up in, in Montgomery County Jail with a felony charge for the first time that, that I had a felony charge. And so my parents were not coming to my rescue on this one. I had a $30,000 bond, and I didn't expect them to come to my rescue. I, I just remember, like, when you get in jail, you you do get a little jailhouse religion. You, I had a 911 prayer I, I wanted him to answer, and so I cried out to him, and, and part of me meant it, but I still wasn't really ready to give up the drugs. They were just kind of all I knew, and um, so, but I cried out, and he dropped in my spirit three words, whole, H-O-L-E, whole, W-H-O-L-E, and holy, H-O-L-Y. And I probably had a buzz of some sort still going on, and um, I, like, I got it in, in my head, but not my heart. Like, I knew what he was telling me. He was giving me the answer. But I, I was so out of it, I, I tried to, like, I guess I kind of thought it was a thought of my own. I was trying to figure out, like, a book I could write on the subject. Y'all, craziness. Like, I even had a, a book title. I just didn't know in my um, heart, but I knew in my head. So he was giving me the answer then. So I would get out, and I would go right back to doing the same old, same old. But I was miserable. I was real miserable. Um, I wanted to die, but couldn't. He just wouldn't take me. I would have committed suicide, but I was afraid of going to hell. There's that hell thing again. Like, I, And I seriously thought that I was going to go to heaven if I died then. My grandmother, sweet thing, she would, like, she's probably the godliest woman I know, and she would tell me, she would speak truth to me, and she would say, Jennifer, you aren't going to heaven. If you die today, you aren't going to heaven. And I would get offended, like, I would look at her like she was being hypocritical of judging my relationship with Jesus when she was just trying to speak truth to me, and she was absolutely right. But, um... I was miserable. I was real miserable. I was facing um, some prison time because I could not stay sober to save my life. I kept violating my probation, selling drug screens. My children, they were getting older, and I was not a part of their life, and I did not want them to grow up and have never been any part of their life. And so, and, and the main driving force at this point was where I was living. He was also an, an addict, but... Um, he saw something in me that I, I didn't see in myself at that time and, you know, said, I'm not going to be able to let you. He probably didn't want to support my habit anymore also, but he had been to a faith-based program. He knew that they worked and was like, I'm going to give you a deadline. you got to get out. And so he would contact my parents, and I, I knew I was about to be at risk of not having a roof over my head, and that had not happened in, in this whole time, and that was scary. And so... um this night, I remember I was sitting on the sofa, and I I watched a sermon, and I remember, I think it was Stephen Furtick, and I, it was talking about life is kind of like a game of chess, and God will make a move, and the devil will make a move, but God will make a move behind him, and I realized in that moment that I was basically playing the devil's pawn, and um, 
that I, I could, that, that he could save me. I was starting to believe that he could save me. Like, I believe that all of my grandmother's fervent prayers, my parents' fervent prayers, their friends, like, they're about to come to fruition in this moment. And so I um, watched that sermon, and I sat there, and I just remember, I probably said it more than once, in all the, the church and Christian school, all that, I still didn't realize that, like, God is right here. I thought he was something that can only be experienced in heaven and that kind of life is just this thing you've got to fight through and fend for yourself. And, I mean, I ser- I really thought that it was just worrying about getting to heaven. I had checked that box off, and so I'm fending for myself. But anyway, so I, I asked him more than once because I wasn't sure he was going to hear me, and I was just like, Lord, please help me. Like, Jesus, please. Please help me, please. And um, I can look back on the life I have today and see that it all began to be orchestrated from that moment forward. But a day or two later, my mom would find a place that I would end up going. They had a friend who has foster children, and one of their foster moms had been to this place and had been successful. And so it was a year-long faith-based program in Lynette, Alabama, of all places, I was agreeable to go, and so when I got there, I found out that I could not have a cell phone for a year, I could not smoke cigarettes, um, and I could not see my kids, my family, but once a month, which honestly, out of all those things, the cigarettes were probably what worried me the most, but I stayed because I was willing to do some things differently from that point, Um, and... When I got there, I saw, like, the women that had come before me, I saw on their faces hope, joy, peace, love, just, and I knew that it was not the absence of drugs, that it was the presence of Jesus. And so I just decided to lean in and give it my all, and um, it was it was real strict. We had, like, daily devotions at 5.30, and... I had to pray out loud. Well, they didn't make us, but they highly encouraged it. And I was willing to do anything different. Like, my life had gotten so miserable, I was I was ready to take some suggestions. And so I, I gave it a try, and I would, um, you know, pray for different things. But one of the things, I, I prayed that he would reveal himself to me. And um, so I could know that he is actually here on, on planet Earth, you know. He would. Um, some of those examples would be, like, I would start reading my Bible, and I would get to the word. I was reading a one-year Bible, so, you know, it's set by certain dates. Um, but I would get to, like, the word teeth, and right at the moment I read the word, like, one of the women in the house, because there were 18 of them, would come in, and she had just gotten back from the dentist, and she'd flash her new dentures because, you know, <laughs> drugs affect your teeth, and she was so proud. But it was, like, right at the same time. And um, another instance, I was reading the word yelling, and the girl in another room yelled right at the same time. Like, things that I would have chalked up as coincidence before, I, I didn't want to now. Like, I wanted that to be my God, and I knew it was. He would also, like, make cardinals cross my path, and still to this day, like, I know that that's just him saying, you know, I love you whenever I see a cardinal. And so I, I knew it. Like, that was my God. He was doing these things for me. And I was forever grateful that um, he had removed the desire to use for me. Like, it, it was gone. It was absolutely gone. I was detoxing at that point from Suboxone, which is not a fun detox at all. 
for those of you who don't know, it, it's a maintenance drug. So it was developed by Big Pharma, basically, in my personal opinion, to, to get drug addicts off of the street drugs and addicted to theirs. And so it has some really bad withdrawal symptoms. Um, but, and I had detox from it many times before, but this time it was, it was not bad. I, I mean, I was able to go clean these churches and it, it was not bad. So I was grateful for that, like super grateful. During that time, I would decide to recommit. Well, I was calling it recommit then, but now I'm pretty sure it was just commit. I don't think I had ever committed before. I mean, I was, you know, we went to church a lot, and I'm in there, like, raising my hands, worshiping something that I never, like, they didn't, nobody did that in my church growing up. I was grateful. I was sitting on the front pew of this church when I, the day I got baptized, and I was just sitting there kind of praying, and um, my prayers were not really asking anything, and I still try to kind of keep them this way, just prayers of gratitude, just thanking them. And I was sitting there thanking him and had my eyes closed and I saw like this, it was almost like a beam of light and these like three shadow figures kind of go away from my body. Again, I would have kind of chalked that up as maybe some past drug residual effects or something, but (laughs) I know that, I mean, he was cleaning me up. I was fighting a spiritual battle. I didn't have to fight it anymore. Like I knew in that moment that he was going to fight for me. And so, I mean, he has. He has. My life today is it's beautiful. Um, I have four years sober now. It'll be five in October. And that is only by the grace of God. You know, I try to be of service for others. Like, being willing to share my story, as scared as I may be sharing it, um, I'm never going to turn down that opportunity because I know that there are others out there that need to hear it. I mean, I don't even smoke cigarettes anymore. I mean, he has totally cleaned me up. I have rights back to my kids. My parents want to be around me. I want to be around them. Um, I have a job at Bradford where I was a three-time alumna. Who knew that you would get a job there if you had been to treatment there multiple times? Um, the felony didn't matter on my record, and so... I'm also a health coach, which is crazy, crazy to even think of considering the way my life was before. I mean, I'm just, I'm grateful. And and everything basically in my life, my, my grandmother, God rest her soul, she passed away last February. But she used to always tell me, she would she would call it our verse, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And she would tell me all along those 10 years, um, Jenny, you know, if you, if you want, to stop this, if you want your life to get better, just trust in him, you know, and, and he will make your path straight. Remember our verse. And, I mean, he has from, from that point forward. And as long as I continue to remember to surrender, I mean, there are things that, that I try to take back from him, but not for too long, like, because life gets real unmanageable real quickly. And, and I remember and, and things just get better when I let him guide the way. After listening to Jennifer's full story, one of the things that really stood out to me was that she grew up in Christian school with an amazing family, going to church. She heard about God, Jesus, her whole life. 
And it wasn't until she was an adult when she said, I mean, she said that she said she truly never knew that God was here beside us. She felt like he was in heaven and we worked our way there. And it was really impactful to me to go, what have I, as someone who's grown up in the church, who's known Jesus my whole life, what are things about him that aren't true that I've just gained from my childhood? God, show me. Mm. what I'm believing about you that's not truth. And I've thought about that too from a parenting standpoint of, you know, you do want to, we've talked about that. We You do want as a parent for your children's faith to be their own. When you grow up in a Christian home, I mean, she she's an exception, but, but so many times it's an inherited faith. Mm-hmm. And you really want your children to experience Jesus for themselves. I know exactly what you're saying, especially in this Bible culture, church cultural world that we live in. Yeah. You know, it's it's cool to be Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said at the beginning, I mean, you know, I was just so intrigued by her entire story where she started off saying, you know, and I love, this is why we want women to discover God in the details of their lives. Because at the beginning of the story, she noticed that discontentment was a thread in her life. And that's kind of what led her down that path originally. I loved the vulnerability of her sharing all of the details yeah. of her addiction. That's one thing we love about storytellers is just the realness and the authenticity of our storytellers. And I just appreciated that so much. I appreciated when she mentioned that she had the favor of God on her life and she didn't know it. I mean, even through her pregnancies and how God protected those babies in the womb when she was using um, the sweet God winks that God gave her when she finally went to that, that final rehab place. And she began to see Him in those God winks. And, and again, it was a reminder of looking for God in those moments instead of, as she, I think, referred to it as, you know, back in the past, I would have just said, oh, that's just a coincidence. It, that was one of my yes. favorite parts mm-hmm. of her story. Me too. Was I have it saying, starred right yes, here. Yes. When she said, you know, I read the word yelling in the Bible and someone yelled yeah. at yeah. the exact same time. Because God is real. Yes. Yeah. And if you ask Him to show Himself to you, guess what? He will. And the way she phrased it, that's why I wrote this down and started. She said, the things I chalked up to coincidence before, I didn't want to now, Mm -hmm. and I wanted it to be God, and I knew that it was. Mm -hmm. That was really powerful. And another thing about her time in in the last treatment in Lynette, Alabama, she said, I saw faith, hope, love, and joy on the Mm -hmm. women's faces, their countenance. Like she could tell that their countenance was different. Okay. For those of you who might be new to the game, this is the Holy Spirit inside of them. And she could see the fruits of the Spirit on their faces. It was was such a beautiful picture. I, I love that as well. And, you know, even going back to speaking of coincidences, one of the things that I talk with Jennifer about in um, the story within the story interview is just this idea of she shared her story back in March. And just with how the placement is on the podcast, it ended up being aired in October, which is her actual five year mark. For those of you who are familiar with numbers in the Bible, you know, we've talked about the number seven, you know, being perfection and completion. Well, the number five actually represents grace in the Bible. And, and that just symbolizes God's goodness and really undeserved favor towards humans. And I just thought, you know, of course God would allow her story to air in October on her five-year sober mark to just reinforce to her, I see you, Jennifer. I am with you. My grace covers you. And I hope that all of you who are listening understand that that grace covers you as well. Because I can assure you that we did not plan for this story to come in October for that reason. Not a coincidence. That is 100% the Lord. 
One thing that hit me between the eyes and and just listening to the story was when Jennifer talked about being at the first treatment. And she looked around the room, and because she had grown up in the environment that she did, she looked at everyone else in the room and thought to herself, I'm not like you. You know, I haven't stolen anything. I don't shoot up. I don't do this or that. And yet she began to experience some of those things. That was so telling to me because so oftentimes in terms of addiction, we think that wouldn't happen to me. That wouldn't apply to me. Certainly that wouldn't happen to my sister or my child. But y'all, addiction is, it's not, it doesn't play favorites. You know, it can happen to anyone. And just, again, her vulnerability, you talked about that, Katie, but just, you know, because the Lord has brought her to a place of healing, she's still in recovery, you know, now she can share and she's making a difference in other people's lives. Yes. I love that even her daughter recognized that. I you know, know that she shares when at the she's, very yeah. beginning. Or, you yeah. know, tell them how you burned it all down. <laughs> 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 Having teenagers myself, that felt very love their honesty. <laughs> felt very right. Uh, well, y'all, thank you, Jennifer, for sharing yes. your story. And typically, addiction stories, stories of recovery, are our most passed along stories. And so, if you know someone, you probably do, walking through a similar story today, we would love for you to share this with them. Share it on Instagram and tag us. Let us know what you think. Send us a DM if God's spoken to you through this story. And we want to remind anyone that might be struggling with addiction, or if you know someone that is, we've included resources in our show notes. We just encourage you to reach out. Reach out to someone today and take the first step to get help. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.